critical third of, our, of the year is a time to really dig deep into a biblical book, right? We, we do a lot of thematic stuff that we need to understand, prayer and this and that, that kind of stuff, but there's a certain time when it's really great just to study a book from one end to the other so that we get our hands on it. And today we're going to start a study of a book that if you were using a Hebrew Bible, you would, you would see the title would be The Names. It would be, or These Are the Names. Because in the Hebrew Bible, they always use the very first word of the book to define the title. And our book that we're going to study, the book that we know as Exodus, starts with, with these are the names of those who went. And so today we're going to begin our journey of studying the book of Exodus. And um, the, the title Exodus comes from from a Greek word that means going out, right? And, and it really kind of describes a lot of what we're going to experience um, in the book of Exodus. They, they, they go out from Egypt. They go out from slavery. They go out to the mountain of God and they meet with God. They go, they go out to become God's people and then go out to go to the promised land. And so there's this whole going out kind of metaphor. And so the name Exodus got attached to what we know as the second book of the Bible. Um, Probably another metaphor that you could use would be an imagery off of the name of Moses that we're going to encounter next week in chapter 2, where because his name means drawn out, one who was drawn out of, taken out of the water, right? And this whole picture that you see in the book of, of Egypt, uh, book of Exodus, is about God drawing his people out of Egypt, drawing them out to a relationship with him, into a covenant with him, out to be a unique people for himself. And so this imagery of going out and being drawn out is something that is going to appear over and over and over again as we go through. But So I want to challenge you to do something as we go through this year. We're going to be in this book, believe it or not, till the latter part of the summer. Some of you saying, wow, that's a long time, like to the end of August, right? Well, I got to tell you, most of the churches that I looked at that have done a study in the book of Exodus, and these are the hip, cool churches, right? You know, And, and they've spent 10, 11, 12 months in the book of Exodus. So imagine if we just started now and we didn't get done until next March. You know, that's what, they, that's what most of them do, 39, 40, 41, 51 sermons out of the book of Exodus. I'm going to spare you. We're only going to do 17, all right? So there'll be some pieces that we're going to have to move through just a little quicker. But I want to challenge you to read through the book of Exodus on a regular basis. Whether you read a chapter a day or you just you do you know, 10 chapters a week or whatever. But I want to challenge you to read through the book of Exodus on a regular basis. You know, there's 41 chapters, so if you do a chapter a day, it's going to take you 41 days. I will warn you that the end of the book has a lot of repetition, right? God gives Moses a very set, detailed instructions on how to build a tabernacle. So he says, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And then you get to the far side of it after the golden calf thing. You get to the far side of it, and it says, and this is what they did. This is what they did. This is what they did. What they did. And it's really just the verbs change. So you can kind of fast forward a few things if you want to read a little faster. And I'd encourage you, once you read it through in your favorite translation, the next time through, read it in a different translation. So you get some different perspectives and values that come out of it. So, but let me start off with just up front. Well, why study Exodus? Right? Why? You know, wow, so 17 weeks, that's a long time. Why study Exodus? Aren't, you know, shouldn't we be looking more at Jesus and all that other kind of stuff? Why are we spending all this time looking at the book of Exodus? And it's a great question. You know, it's a great question I ask myself because, you know, in all my years of ministry, I had never preached a series through the book of Exodus. 
done some sermons out of Exodus, but never done a series through the book of Exodus. And, um, and so, you know, it's some great questions. So I want to give you three reasons, right? And I know some of you are itching to get your Bibles turned. And if you're going to use one of our Bibles that's under your chair underneath, it's, we're going to start on page 46 today, which is Exodus chapter 1. But let me give you a, first, a few reasons as we kind of get into this. The first thing I tell you, the reason we're studying the book of Exodus is because it's a part of God's word. And God's word in and of itself has value. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching. And that's my prayer, right? That's our prayer, that as we go through this, the next 17 weeks, is that there would be great profit for us as we study this book in the Bible. Now, that's a truth that would apply to every book in the Bible. And and let me just remind you that somebody said, well, you know, this isn't maybe as exciting and as engaging as some of the other stuff we do. There's some parts of discipleship that are just the things that we got to put in, right? I mean, all of us kind of want to start here in our relationship with God, and we want to end up way over here. We just made all kinds of progress with God, and we see a lot more, experience a lot more of God, and have a lot more of God. But a lot of times, that journey from one spot to another is built upon just the repetitive acts of praying, studying, reading, going deeper, praying, studying, reading, serving, you know, confessing and repenting and being free. It's just the stuff we have to do. It's all like riding a bike, right? I mean, you can go a long way, a lot faster than you can run, you know, at least you're not going uphill, right? A lot faster than you can run. But, but to do it, you, you just have to keep pedaling, right? It's the same action over and over again. And so part of this, we're digging in because it's something that's good for us. It may not be the most exciting things, but what we need and to understand, etc. The second thing I tell you is that this is spiritually enlightening history. Now, that's a kind of a packed phrase, but it's spiritually enlightening history. First of all, if you will read the book of Exodus with just a little bit of, a, of, a, of, of an imagination, right, you know, it, 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 it will really just jump off the page to you because it's great history to read. I mean, we have villains, right? Pharaoh. We have the underdog, inadequate, fearful, reluctant hero in Moses, right? I mean, we've got all the special effects, right? We've got locust and thunder and lightning and hail and, you know, winds. And we, you get all the, you've got battles and conflict and, you know, you've got grumbling and complaining and you've got all the pieces for a great action movie, right? It, written into the book of Exodus and it's all historical, it's all there. And I'm going to point out a, just a symptom to you today of the sense of authenticity that you can see. And, it's, and so it's, it's, first of all, it's great history. It's a great read if you'll just hang in there and use a little imagination to go with it. But on top of that, it really it gets, gives us an opportunity to watch God work in real time and to learn who he is. You're going to learn about God's patience. We're going to learn about God's power. We're going to learn about God's plan. We're going, to learn, you know, we're going to learn about God's judgment and his righteousness. We're, we're going to see God at work. We're going to see how he, he, he's, he's intimate and personal and connected to Moses. We're, we're going to see all these pieces. We're going to learn a lot of things about God as we go through this, right? And so it's spiritually enlightening history, right? And, and in many ways, it, it serves as a prototype in history for what you and I experience spiritually in our new life in Jesus Christ. Right? This is, this is, we read this, we see the, the Israelites being moved out of slavery 
and brought into a covenant relationship with God. But they're brought out of literal slavery and brought into a, into a relationship with God, a covenant, a connection, a personal bond with God that's established at Mount Sinai. You and I are released from slavery to sin and drawn out to and brought into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, who is the means of our deliverance. It is the picture in history of what God does in Jesus Christ at the beginning of the New Testament. And I I, got to guarantee you, as you and I understand this history more completely, we will understand the power of our deliverance more clearly. The last piece of it, I'd say, is that there is is a self-revelational value to what we're going to study. One of the things that you, you may find helpful or you may find depressing is that as we watch, walk through this book, is you're going to say, you know what, I'm a lot like the Israelites. You know, I mean, we're going to see their doubt. We're going to see their fear. We're going to see their reluctance to change. We're going to see their grumbling with God. We're going to see their, their resistance to leadership. We're, we're going to see everything, right? It's, and, and, and we're going to look at this and say, you know what, Boy, that's me. <laughs> right? That's me. You know, that's the way I am in my relationship with God, right? You know, I, you know we're, we're going to see how they're just, they're just in bondage to the present, and they can't remember the past or anticipate the future. They're only looking in the mo- moment, and if there's not enough food today, then God's just not good. And, and that's the way, that, you know, and we're going to see ourselves in it. And some of us are going to say, I don't really like this very much. <laughs> you know, but just remember, there's grace at the far end. All the way through. So we're going to be reading through all those pieces. So it, it's, it's good stuff, and I'm hoping you'll hang in there and, and make it. So we're going to face a dilemma, though, right? I'm, I am going to get to the text today, so just be patient with me. We're going to face a dilemma, right? Because what's going to ha- what happens is that we, we're, we're actually dealing with a sequel. I'm going to bring up a graphic here on the screen, right? And so when you look at this, this um, thing, Exodus is actually part two of a five-part story. So we're kind of jumping into the middle of the story, and we're gonna, sometimes it's going to be a little confusing because we don't know what goes before, right? You know, uh, I heard one guy compare it to, like, the Star Wars, Star Wars series, right? Uh, you know, I've seen all the Star Wars movies. I'm much more of a Star Trek guy, right? You know, Next Generation, all that kind of stuff. The light, Into Darkness, some of you will release. If you didn't know Khan from the Batman, it just doesn't make any story. Anyways, I'm off the of it, right? But, you know, when they started in 1977, what was it, the... the, the um, the, the Place of Hope or whatever it was. I mean, that was the fourth story in the Star Wars series, right? Then they did four, five, and six. And then all of a sudden, they're going back to number one. And some of us are going to see that movie and say, what is that? You know, where are we? Where did where, where these all these guys go? Because they, they started out earlier, and then they went back, and then they came forward, and there's like 35 years in between. And now they're trying to stick things in the middle, like, you know, part 9B, you know, whatever. And, and, and we have some of the same problems now for ourselves, right? Because we're going to step into the story. Because it's really a five-part story. You're going to see here, I'm calling it actually a six-part story. This story starts in Genesis 1-1, and we're just kind of jumping into the middle of the story in Exodus 1-1, but it doesn't even end with chapter 41, because then it goes on to Leviticus, then it goes on to Numbers, then it goes on to Deuteronomy, you know, and then it really, I mean, the whole journey is to bring them into the promised land. You almost got to complete that with the book of Joshua, so it's like a six-part story, so even for some of us, you know, all right, they entered into this covenant in Mount Sinai or whatever, and now they're wandering around the wilderness, and we're going to end the book. You know, they got a tabernacle, so big woofy. What happened to it? I thought they were going to the promised land. Well, we're not going to get all the way there, right? So, but, so there is this 
trepidation if we have, this difficulty we're going to have, that, that there's a backstory that we may not always understand. And I'm going to try to do my best to bring out the meaningful parts of that backstory as we go through. And so, um, you know, and so one suggestion to you, if, if you're reading something along, it doesn't make a lot of sense, or you don't know who this figure is or whatever, and you know they've got a history, sometimes the cross-references can be really helpful. Take you back to a spot in Genesis or take you forward into something in Deuteronomy or Numbers or somewhere else that's really helpful to you. So anyways, all right. So, so that's a long introduction. So let's get started. So I'd love for you to grab your Bibles and turn to Exodus or the book called The Names, chapter 1. We're going to start with verse 1. And I want to cover chapter 1 today, which quite a bit of stuff for us to deal with, right? And, and I want to follow the same pattern on a regular basis for us. I, w- I want us to read the text. I want us to understand the text. And then I want us to make some applications from the text to ourselves. So that, that's going to be our pattern kind of over it. What, what does it say? What does it mean? And so what does that mean for me? And that's what we're going to try to work through throughout the whole journey, all right? So I want to start with the first seven verses. And then we'll jump into the eight, verses 8 through 22. So these are the names, right? The Hebrew title, right? The names. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. No one to confuse you. Jacob and Israel are the same <laughs> person, right? They have two different names, right? He was Jacob. God renamed him Israel. And so these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, who's also Israel. Each came with his family. There was Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The total of Jacob's descendants was 70, it's an important number to remember, 70. We're going to, see, we're going to make a comparison in just a moment. And Joseph was already in Egypt. So the writer of Exodus, who we believe to be Moses, said, you know what? People can do math. That's only 11 names. We better, you know, where's the 12th person, right? And that's Joseph. Joseph is already in Egypt. And that's part of the backstory that we need to understand. And we'll take a look at that in just a moment. So then Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the earth was filled with them. So at the very outset, God wants us to understand that, that his activity in history never stops. And this is just a part of continuing the story. So I think some of us, sometimes we think, well, you know, God just kind of pulled his hands off. And, you know, right off the bat, you know, you could say God is not a deist. Well, you know, we are not deists. Deists believe that God kind of created the world and then he went on vacation. And so it's up to us to run it at this point. What happens, happens kind of idea. You know, it's, it's kind of like you, you just start your car and walk away. And you don't have to have anything else to do with it, right? It'll just keep running until the gas runs out. And, and, and so God's not actively involved. From the very beginning, Moses tells us that's not the way God is. God has worked in history. He's working in history. He's going to keep working in history. He's worked in your life. He's working in your life. He's going to keep working in your life. So, and, and from the very beginning, he wants to connect it back to what he's already done. And that takes place, he's, he goes back and he grabs the story of Jacob, who was the grandson of Abraham, and, and his 12 sons, and how they got to Egypt. Egypt. 
And you have to read all of Genesis 37 through 50 to really get all the backdrop on this. But let me, Jacob had seven, 12 children. The two youngest were Joseph and Benjamin. Benjamin, and so when, when he sent his children out to find grass for the flocks, the 10 oldest ones went. And so when he wanted to get an update, he sent Joseph out to bring back a report and to bring them some food. And, and the older 12, 10 brothers, they didn't like Joseph because Joseph was a blowhard in their mind, right? He's just one of these guys that was always patting himself on the back, talking about how great he was and how all the great things he's going to do. And they didn't like Joseph, right? Because Joseph was saying, you know, I had these dreams that you guys are going to land up serving me. And they're like, what? You're just a runt, right? And so when they had their opportunity, they sold him off, as all good brothers do, sold their son, their brother off into slavery, and he landed up in Egypt, right? And, um, and, 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 and the story goes through how Joseph went through this kind of this difficult, arduous, kind of deflective kind of past, but he rose to a place of prominence in Egypt because God used him to spare the nation of, Israel, of, Israel, of Egypt when it went into one of its worst national disasters, when it was going to have seven years of drought and there was going to be virtually no crops at all for the people to eat. And God revealed all of this to Joseph, and Joseph was placed in a position by Pharaoh to prepare the people for the famine that was coming. And so he was, he was a hero in Egypt. And when the famine hit, his brothers needed to come and look for food. And at the end result of it, Jacob and all the other 11 brothers came to Egypt, and they were, they were received like they were royal heroes, I mean, you guys are the family of the guy who has saved our nation, Joseph. You know what? Go out here and pick out the best land that you want and set up shop because you are always welcome in Egypt. And so that's the backstory. That's how they got there. But it's going to change in just a moment. But, now, but in the midst of this, Moses clearly wants us to understand that God's being faithful to his promises right? They're in Egypt, right? They're not in the promised land. They're not in the land that God has said, this is what I'm going to give to you. They are in Egypt, but God is still being faithful to his promises. Let's back up a little bit. The next, next um, um, point here is that God is fulfilling his promise to Abraham. You know, in, 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 in Genesis chapter 15, Moses is an old, I mean, sorry, uh, Abraham's an old man. Right? He, he's been wandering around the promised land for, for literally a whole generation. He and Sarah don't have any children. And God shows up to renew his promises to, to, to Abraham. And, and Abraham's saying, well, what good, what good is it? I mean, you're, you're promising me that. I don't have any offspring. You know what? There, there's a guy here who's a slave. He's a servant in my house. His name, name is Eliezer. He's going to land up to get, be the one who inherit, inherits all this stuff. Nobody from, from me. God said, no, 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 no. He says, you know what? So he says, he, God takes him outside. Now, remember, Abraham's almost 100 years old, right? Almost 100, like 99 years old. There are no pharmacies, right, to help out with anything, right? He's, he's 99 years old, right? And God takes him outside and says, he says, he says, take a look at the sky and count the stars if you're able to count them. And then he said, so your offspring will be that numerous, right? And, and when you look at the passage of, in verse 7, but the Israelites were fruitful. 
They increased rapidly, and they multiplied, and they became extremely numerous. So the land was filled with them, right? God is fulfilling his promises to Abraham. But guess what? It's 350 years or so later that this is actually coming to fruition, right? As they're multiplying. Not only that, God is keeping his promises to Jacob, right? And as we look at it, it, it Genesis chapter 46, when Joseph was down in Egypt, the brothers were saying, hey, Joseph's down there. He's invited us to come down. And Jacob's like, I don't know if we should leave the promised land, right? I just don't know if we should leave. And this is what God says to, to, to Jacob. He says, I am God, the God of your fathers. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there, right? And God is keeping his promises. Now, how many people went down into Egypt? 70, right? You guys blew your moment, right? You had your chance to shine and, and you blew. 70 people, right? Now, we're going to read a little later as we move through the book of Exodus. Now, it's going to be about 80 years later when they actually leave, 430 years after they arrived. They're, when they depart, there's going to be 600,000 men of war, right? So when you add on the fact that there were women and children, and people who were too old to be men of war. The best estimates we have is that somewhere between two and a half and three and a half million people leave Egypt. They come in as 70. They leave 430 years later as three, three to three and a half million people. So even at this point in time, as we're reading in verse 7, which is around 350 years into it, there's a two million, two and a half million people. And God is keeping his promises. He says, I'm going to make you fruitful, and you're going to multiply, and your, your descendants are going to be just too numerous to count, and you're going to grow into a great nation in a place that's not the promised land. And what a great notion for us, because this is not one of my points, that sometimes, even when we're in a place where we really don't want to be, that may be some of the moments where God's activity is the strongest within us. But we'll just... Set that one aside. That's a freebie. No extra charge for that one today. So there's some, some tremendous stuff in there. So, but it doesn't stay that way forever. Let's verse, we'll look at verses 8 through 22. A new king who had not known Joseph came to power in Egypt. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Let us deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further. And if war breaks out, they may join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So you get this idea here. They were received as royalty, right? And now they're a problem. They're a national security threat. And what they're being looked at is probably very much the same dynamics that we had with when we had Americans who had Japanese descent in their background, right? We were terrified that internally they were going to turn right on us. So we, we did just despicable things to these families out of fear. Same thing's happening in, in Egypt. They're looking around and saying, how many of them are there? Holy cow. You know, if somebody started fighting from the outside and we had to send our forces to the borders, I mean, they, they could just ravage the whole country. I don't know if we can trust these people. So they enter into dark days. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They became slaves. 
They built Python and Ramesses as supply cities for pharaohs. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied. Right? So the whole idea is we're going to work them to death so they won't produce so, much, so many children. Didn't work. The more they worked them, the more little Israelites kept popping up. Right? The more they multiplied and, so, and spread, so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly. And they made their lives bitter with difficult labor and brick and mortar and all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. They, they, were, they were slaves, and they were treated as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwife, so, so when, the, when the, the oppression doesn't work, all right, we need another plan. It's not working, right? We're trying to work these guys to death, and not enough of them are dying. In fact, they're, getting, they're becoming more numerous. So we need another plan. So this is what they say, this is what we're going to do. And they read the story here. Then the, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sipra and the other was named Pua. Aren't you glad your children, your parents did not name you Pua, right? You know, and so just count your blessings, right? Name them one by one. And one of them can be, God, thank you that my parents did not name me Pua, all right? So you got one blessing at least, right? Says, said, when you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son kill him. But if it's a daughter, she may live. The best we can tell is that, you know, with a son, you know, he was going to be Hebrew. All the children he had would be a Hebrew. But if it was a girl, she could be brought into an Egyptian home. If she married an Egyptian, any offspring she would have would be Egyptian. So the women really weren't a threat. It was just the men. So if, 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 there's, a, if there's a boy born, you've got to kill it. Infanticide. That's exactly what he's talking about, infanticide. Right? So the Hebrew midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. What a great model for us, right? Do what's right in the eyes of the Lord, not necessarily what's going to preserve you in your, in, your, in your position. And they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, well, why have you done this and, and, and let the boys live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, the, the Hebrew women, they're not like Egyptian women, but they're vigorous. <laughs> but they're vigorous. So he's really calling the Egyptian women wimps, right? You know, that's what the, the, the Egyptian women are wimps, and they take a long time, and they lay around. The, the, the Egyptian, the Israelite women, man, they, you know, they, they just get out to the birth stool, and they give birth before we can even get there, right? So for they are vigorous and give birth before a midwife can get to them, you know? So, and, and, and so they're, they're, I guess this is kind of graphic, but I guess the way they used to work on giving birth was that they, they kind of set up stones and a woman would squat on it and just kind of push the baby out between the stones. So seems like a great method to me, but I'm a guy, you know, but I, you know, I don't know how it goes. But, but what they're saying was, you know what, they, they get there and they give birth to it and they're gone and back to work before we even get there, right? And so well, we don't know, you know, kind of idea. And, and so, and, but look what, look, look what happens, right? So God was good to the midwives, you know, they, 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 were, they, they did what, God, what was right in the eyes of God, and God was good to them. And the people multiplied, and they became very numerous. And, and since the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So Pharaoh then commanded all his people, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, let every but let every daughter live. And we're going to see that take place next week as we look at Moses being 
not thrown into, but placed into the Nile. And this is a, this is a, a very authentic kind of picture, right? Because, you know, you were in a land of Egypt that's dominated by the Nile. And, so and because they had water, their primary way of execution was to drown people. Now, in Palestine, where the Israelites take root in the promised land, it's rocks everywhere. So what's their method of execution? Stoning, right? So you just get this vivid picture that this is, this is, this is actually what's going on. This is reality. This is history. But you have these... This, so they go down... Egypt is the land of deliverance. We've got food, we escape the famine, we multiply, we grow, etc. And then all of a sudden, dark days come. And these days are really dark. They find themselves in a place where they are just oppressed and pushed on every corner. And then they're looking to stamp them out and to get rid of them. But there's a glimmer of hope in the midst of all of this. So uh, these, these, these dark days were not unexpected, right? When, when God had spoken to, to, um, to Abraham in chapter 15 of Genesis, again, the backstory that comes forward, he says, you know what? Your, your offspring are going to be like numerous as the stars, but make sure you understand this. He says, he says, know this for certain. Your offspring will be foreigners in a land that does not belong to them. They will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Even in the darkness... God's plan is being fulfilled. And he said to Jacob again, he said, however, you know, when he's talking about them being in, in the foreign land, he says, he says, however, I will judge the nation that they serve. And after they will go out with many possessions. And, 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 um, and you, we're going to see that happen a little later in the book. Even in the midst of the darkness, there's a glimmer of hope because God is in control. So, I got three takeaways for you. I, I, I know our time is short, but let me just give three takeaways from you from this text. Right? First of all, it's the foundations, the entry into the story. It sets the context of slavery, the fact that they're, they're hopelessly and helplessly enslaved in Egypt with no way out. Here's the first point I want you to take away, and I think this is critically important for every single one of us to get, is that God keeps his promises but he doesn't always keep them in the context that we expect, in the way that we expect, right? When God said to Abraham, take a look at the sky, count the stars. Oh, lost count? That's because they're beyond counting, right? He says, that's your offspring are going to be like that. And, Moses, and Abraham's saying, yes, right? Of course, he's got no kids, but he's saying, yes. Never did he expect that that was going to take place. Well, they're being crushed in slavery, in Egypt. When those that, that God had used the descendants of Abraham, Abraham to deliver them from the famine that came, the, the national disaster that was the seven years of drought, you know, they, they, and they turn on them and oppress them and seek to kill them, and restrain, God is still at work. And, and you know, that is something for you and I to really embrace because sometimes we look at the promises of God and they're being fulfilled. I mean, God promises to grow us and to shape us and to use us. And sometimes we, we, we'd certainly rather do that on a beach with a lemonade in our hand than in a hospital room receiving radiation. God has a promise. Context isn't always the place we want to fill. And, and, I'm, and I'm not trying to minimize the pain, the struggle, 
etc., that goes with, with some of the difficulties that come into our lives. But God is faithful. But sometimes the way those promises are fulfilled in our lives happen in under, unexpected places, in unexpected ways. And that is just a, a, an incredible challenge for us. And because and, 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 this, this, is, this is a dynamic that works out. Because we get into that moment, we think, you know what? This doesn't make any sense, and we think we know how it should be. And, and, and I just have this imagery of God like a father trying to work with, with, with their kid, right? I, I can remember my two kids were pretty close in age, so they, their annoyance level was pretty much similar all the way through their journey together, right? But, but I can remember when, you know, it's just scenarios when, when our kids were younger and my brother's kids were getting a little older or when my kids were getting a little older and their other cousins were younger, right? And, and you know, so they're eight, nine years old and they're building whatever and the 18-month-old just has great joy in knocking everything down, right? You know, and they're just all mad and yelling. And so he said, you know, you're the older one. You have to be in control. You know better. You know that they don't know. So you know that, that kind of idea. And, and like, yeah, all right, all right, you know, kind of idea. You know, and, and it's, it's the same thing with us in our relationship with God, right? You know, it's, 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 it's God's like, you know, I know you, I know you've got 57 years under your belt, right? But I got, I got eternity under my belt. You know, and, and, and what happened 20,000 years ago and what's going to happen 20,000 years in the future, I, I know it as perfectly as I know what's going on in this moment. D- don't you think I may just know a little bit better than you how this is all going to work out? And it's just this call to faithfulness. And we're going to see the Israelites struggle with this dynamic over and over and over again. And it doesn't matter. God could just have parted the Red Sea, and the next day they're like, where's God? You know, we, we don't get any water. You know, and, and it's just that quick. God is faithful to his promises. It always doesn't happen in the same ways. Here's the second truth I want you to see. You look at verse 8. And up comes a Pharaoh who doesn't know Joseph. And, and, and immediately you see in that context, there is a danger when you and I forget what God has done. There is great danger for ourselves and for everyone else when we forget what God has done. You know, God had sent Joseph down before the Israelites into Egypt, not only to be an escape place for the Israelites so Jacob and his family could survive the famine, but also deliver the nation of Egypt, right? And and it had been this gift. They, they were, and, they, and God had worked through all of that, and now they forget. And those who were God's gift to them, and God had blessed them because they had blessed Abraham's offspring. Remember, God said, I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who curse you. They forget, and the nation lands up cursing the Israelites, and they land up being cursed themselves. So much so that when Pharaoh says, you know what, I'm ready for you guys to go, get out of here, he said, but before you go, you've got to bless the nation because you, you can't leave us underneath this curse that we're experiencing. And, and you and I, there is a great danger when we forget what God has done. He has sent his son into the world as one of us so that we can have a relationship with him that's based upon what Jesus did, not what we've done. And that, and, and that is the greatest gift that overwhelms every other circumstances throughout. And when you and I fail 
to see that that is God's greatest provision and it shapes our mission in life and our purpose in life and our goal in life and what should bring us joy in life and the way it should shape our relationship, the way that we should see other people. When we forget that stuff, life just goes, not just for us, but for everybody. Got one last insight, and I don't want to press this too hard, but I think it's a powerful insight. And I, I call it the frog in the kettle effect. Right? You know, this is an old, old illustration kind of picture. You know, it's not original with me, but, but the whole idea is if you, you bring a, a, a pot of water up and make it pretty hot, you know, cooking hot, and you toss a frog in it, the frog's going to jump out immediately. But if you put the frog in the water when it's a good temperature and then you slowly turn up the heat, the frog will stay in there until it just gets cooked. And, and, and you see this picture here that this is happening to the Israelites. They go in, they're growing and emerging, and even though life gets harder and harder on them, and they slide deeper and deeper into slavery, they really don't recognize that there's a better future somewhere. And when God even shows up using Moses as an instrument, they're resistant to moving forward. And, and, and I think a lot of this, the, 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 the carryover for me is that a lot of us look and say, you know what, Th- this is the best life that I can have even though we're enslaved to so many things in our lives, burdened by so many things in our lives, and, 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 and it's just like the water has gotten hotter all the way around us and we can't recognize that we're in a place that's not good for us and God's got something far better. And we need to take that journey through the Red Sea out to the mountain to receive it from God. There's just great stuff in the journey that's ahead for us. You know, and, 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 and there, it's amazing to me that as we're going to see in just a few chapters, the Israelites are saying, well, I, I want to go back to the slavery. You know, yeah, life really stunk, but we had good meat to eat. You know, and, and just how low. They say this whole frog in the kettle effect. So how do you end a sermon after all of that, right? Are you, are you a frog in the kettle? That's not a great picture, is it, right? I've had frog legs once. Kind of tastes like chicken, but not something I would put high on my list to eat regularly. Um, I'm way off track. God is faithful, and even in difficult circumstances, God is working out his promises to present you and I to himself without spot or blemish if we'll just have the faith to embrace it to what God has done in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together for just a moment.